Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson, and today is show number 100. Dun, da, da, da. Note to self, spend a little money on sound effects. So today's guest is Rich Roll, which is totally fitting on many levels. First of all, today is the release of his book, along with his wife, Julie Pyatt, The Plant Power Way. Uh, I just reviewed it on Amazon. It's a gorgeous book. And it is currently number 38 in all books. So this is a great chance if you hear this and can get to uh, to buy it today, either from Amazon or another online store or uh, a local brick and mortar store. Rich uh, mentions in this interview that he would like you to buy it from your local independent bookstore if uh, you still have one. And we can really help this, you know, get onto the New York Times bestseller list and really help spread the word about... Um, plant-powered living, about planting ourselves. Uh, It's also fitting because this podcast in its current form owes a lot to Rich. Uh, About a year ago, uh, he and I met on a uh, holistic holiday at sea cruise, and I got to see him in action. He interviewed me for his podcast, and I got to see kind of how seriously he and his family took the endeavor. And at that point, I was kind of just, you know, interviewing people more or less casually with uh, the, the the cheapest equipment I had. Sometimes I would make recordings just on my iPhone while walking outside in the wind. And Rich really impressed on me that it's important to sweat the details, to have good sound quality, to edit properly, to promote it, to to do all the things that, you know, if, if you're doing it at all, why not do it the best you can? And that lesson uh, immediately hit home. Uh, Rich and I corresponded via email, and he was incredibly generous with resources, help, advice, guidance. And while I'm still not at the level that he's at, I'm on the path. And when you hear our interview, you'll see the importance of being on the path as opposed to achieving the destination. So again, today's the release, uh, April 28th, 2015, of The Plant Power Way. If you're listening to this sometime in the future, hello, future. Um, I assume it will still be available um, in in some sort of format. And I urge you to uh, to pick it up and browse and, and uh, learn from it and join all of us on the path. So without further ado, Rich Roll, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you for having me, Howard. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So nice to talk to you. Well, I'm, uh, I don't know if, if, uh, if Julie told you this. Julie Pyatt, your, your wife, was my uh, 99th guest, and you, mm. this is the 100th. So I feel like I this, love it. This is a, a milestone. I've actually, when I, when I hit like mid 80s, I started thinking about like, who do I want? Who could be the 100th? And I, end, I ended up like not doing anything about it. <laughs> like you were on the list, Colin was on the list. And then, you know, I had sort of some, some weird stretch goals like, you know, Jane Goodall or, you know, you know, Gandhi, like, (laughs) and I just sort of didn't do anything about any of it. And so I'm really happy that it's you because you really have been the one person who's been the inspiration for me to take this thing seriously and, and, and kick it up to, to a level where I feel proud about what I'm putting out. That's great, man. I'm really happy to hear that. It's an honor to be your, your hundredth guest. And, you know, I have to say for your listeners, um, when we sat down and you did my podcast, that was such an amazing conversation. And, and to date, that's still, you know, one of my favorite interviews and one of the most popular interviews. And I remember that when we were talking and you were kind of like, 
yeah, I do my podcast, but I don't really share it. Or it sounded like you just, you were reluctant to put too much energy into, you know, promoting it or growing the audience. And I was like, what are you doing? Come on, you have such a great message. Let's get it out there. So I'm happy to hear that you're enthusiastic about doing that. Yeah, I think I think it was your enthusiasm, your inspiration. You sent me a bunch of emails with uh, with really good advice, and it was the toys, like <laughs> like really toys nice, help. really nice mics, and uh, you know uh, the, the. I still don't know what most of these things do. I just sort of bought them based on recommendations of people you uh-huh. recommended. So I got all these, uh, you know black pieces of electronics with with knots of knobs and buttons and uh, <laughs> and lights but people tell me it sounds better so i'm very happy about that well good you know i think that uh you know this is a really powerful medium and it's cool to see you know podcasting is kind of having its moment right now because of some great programs that have hit the airwaves like serial and, and the like that have really kind of introduced um you know, a larger, more mainstream audience to the format. So the days of what's a podcast are kind of, you know, slowly moving into the past and people are embracing it. And there's just something so cool about being able to talk into a mic and and have that message just spread across the planet to wherever you are. And, And it's been an incredible experience for me doing the podcast. And I just love everything about it, you know, and I, I just feel so connected to it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's a gift to be able to, you know, every week kind of talk to people wherever they are. It's, a, it's just such a cool thing. Yep. I agree. And I have to, I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm sharing them now and I'm, I'm happy to share them. I'm happy to, to receive feedback that people find them valuable, but I was doing it before I was really sharing it and just getting almost as much out of it, just just talking to people. Well, it's the greatest scam on the planet, right? Because <laughs> it gives you this excuse to call up people that you're interested in and hoodwink them into uh, answering your questions for an hour. Uh, and so just on the personal kind of selfish self-improvement tip, you know, it's it's extraordinary. And then, you know, to be able to then share that is is, is cool. But yeah, I mean, it's a great way to just... Yeah, uh, get to spend an hour with somebody awesome, you know, and, and, uh, when do we get that, you know, when do we get that opportunity to just sit down and, and talk to somebody who we find interesting or inspiring and pick their brain? You know, it's, it's an amazing thing. Right. Well, so let me not waste this opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we had actually almost, uh, done an interview, I think in September of 2013, when I first, uh, read Finding Ultra, uh, your first book. And I have all these sort of weird notes that I took in the margins of things that like, I really wanted to ask you and I'm looking at them now, like, they're, they're you know, it's pretty much gibberish. Um, <laughs> but I do, you know, so I want to talk a little bit about um, your, your experiences that you wrote about in Finding Ultra, but I also want to bring them into the present. You have a new book just coming out called The Plant Power Way um, that is just a, a whopper of a volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love to talk kind of a little bit about sort of the, the, the evolution of, you know, of yourself and as, as a proponent of a, you know, a meaningful, energized, motivated, passionate, plant-based lifestyle. Um, so I guess if, if I could, I'd love to start with just a few things from, from Finding Ultra, which I was, which I was rereading sure. this afternoon in the hopes of understanding my notes. 
Um, so I have to say that I, I found the first half of the book really hard to read in the way that certain movies are just gripping, but really hard to watch because you, um, you associate so much with the main character, you identify with them that all of their struggles become yours. <laughs> and, and this colossal train wreck that w- that was my life early on. <laughs> yeah, it was, well, it was, you know, it was a whole series you know, I can, I was, I was like, oh no, don't, 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 don't do that. You know, no, 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 bad decision. Put, put the plastic cup of beer down. Don't. And, and what I, what I realized in, in reading it is, is just in terms of, uh, you know, you, you worked in Hollywood. I'm sure you know a lot about, you know, scripts and screenwriting and, and story theory is that here was a story that was almost entirely, um, moved forward by your actions rather than the outside world. Hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> you know, you had you well, had you had plenty of opportunities to do things. The world was open to you. You, you know, you, and in both ways, both in in the in the horrible, you know, things that happened to you. They were kind of your doing, and right. then the wonderful things. Like th- this is like really a story of extreme agency. Yeah, extreme agency and kind of self-will run riot, I suppose, um, which is in the parlance of, of recovery. I mean, I think the book was an exploration in, in taking responsibility for, you know, for my actions for, for better or worse. And it's true. You know, I, 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 you know, I had a lot of opportunity as a young person. Um, I kind of had the world at my feet and uh, I proceeded to, you know, make some decisions that really put that into peril. And, and I think for me, it was kind of, uh, you know, the experience of, of, of writing all of that out was me kind of wrestling with it and, and learning how to, you know, ultimately take complete responsibility for the decisions that I made and, you know, not being a victim. You know, I, I think when I was out drinking and using drugs, you know, it's easy to be a victim and blame other people for your problems. But, you know, all of the sort of negative things that transpired throughout my 20s and early 30s were really a, a direct result of, of decisions that I made and actions that I took. Yeah, well, it, and I think that's what I was seeing is it's, it's so refreshing and unusual to see a narrative in which there's no, you know, there is no victimhood. Ultimately, that you you recognize at a really deep level how much of a hand you've had in, in manifesting all the things bad and good. Um, yeah, and I think it gets you know it gets tricky with self will because as a young person, you know, when I was a kid, I was a very kind of insecure, awkward child. I had trouble making friends. Uh, you know, I just felt disconnected and. And I discovered the sport of swimming, which was the first thing that I had any kind of like natural, you know, feel for. And, uh, you know, I was kind of good at it. Um, and, you know, I pursued that and that gave me comfort. And I quickly realized when I was about 14 or 15 that although I had, you know, some level of talent that I was never going to be great because I suddenly was swimming with all these kids that were clearly just much more gifted than I was. Mm. Um, and I made a decision. I made a very conscious decision that I wanted to be at their level and that the only way I was going to get there was was if I was uh, willing to kind of go the extra mile and work super hard, you know. And so that's what I did. Like I, I was able to kind of realize that when I, you know, doubled the work and put the time in that, you know, my grades improved, I became a good student, and I also was able to kind of excel 
in this sport. And, and that's a direct result of self-will, right? And so my experience as a young person was when you apply yourself, uh, you can get results. And that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. So by the time I was 18, I got into all these amazing colleges and, you know, I was a standout talent in my sport and it was all great. Um, but I think what happened was when I started struggling with drugs and alcohol, I tried to apply those same principles, you know, that work ethic and that sense of self-will to this problem. And it was very uh, disorienting for me uh, to realize that that couldn't solve the problem because in my mind, everything that I had achieved, everything good that had happened in my life was a direct result of my willingness to work extra hard at it. And so how come I couldn't quit drinking by just working really hard at not drinking, you know, and I would continually fail. I would relapse. My life got worse. And, and that kind of, you know, questioned my whole worldview. My whole paradigm was kind of shattered by that. And it wasn't until uh, it, was, it was told to me that the only way I was going to solve my, my drug and alcohol problem was to relinquish my self-will, to let go, to surrender, uh, to, you know, let go and let God, as they say. And, and to me, that was a foreign language. You know, to me, that meant defeat. You know, how do I let go of my self-will? My self-will is how I define myself. And so, you know, the process of getting sober and creating a foundation of sobriety and maintaining sobriety has really been one of, it's been a spiritual exploration uh, of myself and, you know, of forces greater than myself that have, you know, over time um, healed me and, and understanding that uh, there's a difference between surrender uh, and and defeat, that those are not synonymous and yet actually very different things. Hmm. So how do, how do you use your self-will these days? Obviously, without any, you know, you may just sort of lay in bed or, uh, or maybe that's not true. Maybe you don't need any self-will and sort of life just sort of takes care of itself. Um, I think it's the distinction between um, taking action and, and, uh, and uh, letting go of the results, right? So whereas self-will is very intertwined with an attachment to the result of that self-will. Um, you know, the difference is that now I still, you know, I'm highly motivated. I work very, very hard. I try to live more balanced. <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm definitely prone to extremes, but, you know, I'm always trying to achieve greater balance in my life. But I really, I really let go of the results of, 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 of what I do, you know, and I try to focus on um, the intention behind what I'm doing. Why am I doing what I'm, what, what I'm doing? Am I doing it for ego reasons or am I doing it in service? You know, is it selfless or selfish? And am I attached to the results of what I'm doing or, <clears throat> or am I doing it because, um, there's a greater purpose, you know, at hand. And so a perfect example would be this new book that's coming out, right? The Plant Power Way. Well, you know, I would very much like that book to be a New York Times bestseller, right? Like who wouldn't want that? Right. But then the work, you know, the work that comes into play is, well, how much of that is my ego? Because I want to be able to say that, that I'm a New York Times bestseller. And how much of that is, you know, a, a, a true desire uh, and understanding that if it becomes a New York Times bestseller, then it has the greater power to impact other people and influence culture. And, you know, it's a mix of the two. You know, I'm certainly not completely selfless, 
Um, but I also do a tremendous amount of work, you know, that is in service. Like I took for me to do my podcast, it takes a tremendous amount of time. Um, and I, I really try to get into the mindset of just trying to be of service to people. I'm not doing it to make a bunch of money and it's very gratifying. And I, and I guess on some level it's, it's cool for my ego when I see, I get a bunch of downloads and all of that, but I really do feel like my heart is in the right place with that. And I think that that is why the the podcast ultimately has has been successful over time. Hmm. I think you just answered one of the my incoherent uh, margin notes, which was <laughs> something that looks like sort of trust in self. How much how possible with so much hindsight, which I guess was my way of saying you know given as you know re reading the the story of that train wreck and the decisions you made, what, what allows you to trust yourself now? And it sounds like that that's the distinction, whether you're doing mm -hmm. it for ego or service. Yeah, I think that when, when, you know, my spiritual health is dialed in, then my instincts are much, are much more trustworthy, you know, and I, and for me, you know, that's different for everybody. But for me, that means being very active in my recovery you know, the more kind of uh, I'm in service to other people, then the more kind of grounded I am and the more that, um, you know, my sense of priorities is 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 kind of balanced and intact. Uh, if I'm not, you know, kind of going to my secret society meetings and, and kind of doing the things that they tell you there to maintain your sobriety, then I can quickly devolve into, you know, an egocentric person who is operating on self-will and, and thinking that my ideas are great when they're actually leading me astray. So, you know, self-knowledge uh, sort of will avail you nothing. But I think that when, um, when you are kind of in faith and trusting, you know, that when, when you are taking actions for the right reasons, that the universe will kind of, you know, conspire to support you in that regard, then my life tends to, to kind of evolve and, and move forward more smoothly. Mm. So the Plant Power Way is a collaboration between you and your wife, Julie. And in Finding Ultra, you talk a lot about Julie and, you know, sort of see, seeing her as your your anchor, your, uh, your saving angel. Um, and I was really moved by the fact that you had to ask her three times the, the, I guess the morning of your 40th birthday after the incident mm -hmm. on the stairs where you then went upstairs and, and visualized your, your then very young daughter's wedding, um, without you, cause you'd be dead by then. And you asked her, you know, kind of shyly about, you know, that cleanse that you do, maybe I could do it. And you had to ask her three times. <laughs> um, and I, th I thought there's, I, th I felt like there was tremendous wisdom in, in that, uh, in her response, it reminds me of a, of a, of a Jewish law that if someone goes to a rabbi and asks to be converted, the rabbi has to turn them away three times. And I'm, oh, that's so interesting. I'm wondering what you, what you, you know, I don't know if you've talked with her about it, whether she did it consciously or what, what, you know, what was the dynamic like for you to go to her for help and see her be very sort of nonchalant almost about this transformation that must have been very dear to her? Yeah, I think that that uh, that question really gets at the heart of of our relationship dynamic. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much you explore this with Julie, but, um, you know, what was going on at the time was, you know, 
prior to, you know, this sort of little epiphany that I had, you know, Julie had always been the healthier one in our, in our relationship equation. And, you know, she was always, she wasn't completely plant-based, but she was always eating, you know, on the very healthy side of foods. And, and, you know, she was always interested in self-exploration and, and, you know, kind of developing her inner life and her spiritual life. And she was always reading these amazing texts by, you know, Eastern masters on this or that. And, and, you know, she was watching me kind of slowly devolve. You know, I was sober, but I was becoming progressively uh, more dissatisfied in my profession. I was putting on weight. And, you know, there was a density to me. Uh, and, and by density, I don't just mean physical density. Like there was an emotional density and a spiritual density to how I kind of carried myself. And, you know, she was always able to kind of with her, you know, sort of cat-like x-ray vision powers, you know, kind of see the real me locked inside of that. And, and she was becoming incredibly frustrated because she'd give me a book or make a suggestion and say, why don't you try this? Or why don't you do that? Like, I can see where, you know, who, who you really are underneath that. Like, let me help you bring that out. And I think the more that she did that, the more I resisted, you know, for whatever psychological reasons or things that happened to me when I was a young person, like, don't tell me what I should do. I know what's, I know what to do. Like, leave me alone. Like the more she pressed, the more I rebelled against that. And I, I think that's a natural human dynamic on some level. Um, and then she kind of had her own moment of reckoning with all of this where, <clears throat> you know, she was faced with her own decision, which was, you know, how much longer am I going to pursue this, this, you know, sort of idea that I need him to be different, you know, and, you know, because it's making her unhappy and she would surround herself with her friends. They would all tell her she's right and I'm wrong and blah, 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 blah. Um, or, you know, I think the sort of spiritual challenge for her was, can she let that go? Like, can she get to a place where she could honestly say, like, I love this guy exactly the way he is. I don't need him to be any different than, than who he is. And I'm going to make that choice. Not in a, not in a glib you know, lip service kind of way, but to actually believe that and, and follow that up with actions. And, and I think that she arrived in that place where she really did let it go. Like she let go of this whole idea that, that, you know, I'm, I need to be someone other than who I am and, and made a choice. I'm just going to love him the way he is unconditionally. And I think when she did that, there was a shift in the energy between us and I could sense that. And so you know, where I was used to her kind of coming at me with, you know, try this, do this, why aren't you doing this? Suddenly that was gone. There was this void. And suddenly she really didn't care. She was like, do what you want to do, but not in a, not in a judgmental kind of passive aggressive way, like in an honest way, like, you know, it's your life, but, but in a happy way, like, and I sensed that I could sense the change. And suddenly I think what that did was it made me suddenly have to think about these things for myself. You know, what, what is it that I want, that I'm doing? Why am I doing it? Why am I eating this way? Why am I making these choices about my lifestyle? And I think that that was the beginning, sort of the seed getting planted of, of me, like beginning to take responsibility for those decisions, not to please somebody else or to get somebody off my back, but for myself. And so while that seed started to fertilize, you know, then that staircase incident happened and the timing was just right for me to then really in that moment embrace and take ownership of, of you know, 
how I was treating myself. So I think, uh, so I think, you know, there, there is a lot of wisdom in how she approached that. Uh, and I think that, you know, I am extremely lucky that she kind of understood these principles on some level that have allowed me to kind of make this change and, and, and sustain it. Well, that's, a, that's a great lesson in the, the power of surrender. Right. Yeah, it goes back to surrender again, right? Like she, you know, she was not, she removed herself from, from the results. Like she just didn't need me to be, to change or to be different. And I think when she let go of that, like when you let go, then there is that vacuum and what enters that vacuum, right? What, what steps in to fill that void? And I think what stepped in was, you know, faith and, 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 uh, you know, my own, you know, my own, you know, it, it allowed a place for my own journey to germinate. Right. And I'm, I may be sort of projecting hard and, into your state at that time and your relationship, but I, f I feel like there was, there, there may have been something really wise in your soul that recognized the danger of giving your life over to a woman who had not totally surrendered her need for it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's going, that's like peeling the layers back even more. Um, that's something to think about though. That's interesting. And, and, and I think like, you know, when I characterize what our relationship was like before, it's not like she was a nag or anything. I mean, we have a, we're very well matched and, and we've always been a great couple. And that doesn't mean that we don't argue like any, anybody who's been with somebody for a long time, that stuff happens. That's, you know, being in a relationship, but but, you know, we've always we've always been very, very compatible. So it's not like she was harassing me, you know, to be different. I just I just want to make sure that that's it's not characterized in that way. Right. Now, I'm just thinking about my own um, midlife crisis at the age of 42, where one of the things I desperately wanted to do was just have my wife tell me what to do because she's a spiritual type person and I didn't feel like I was. Like I was always the, the intellectual, the skeptic, and it was, there was, you know, and I just sensed the danger in, in sort of giving my life over to a woman and saying, okay, this, this Western intellectual will thing hasn't worked for me. So you take over. Right. Yeah. It's very similar. You know, I came from that same perspective as well. And, and, uh, and, you know, it would be convenient if that was the solution. Uh, and it's less convenient when you understand that only you can take that upon yourself. You can have a partner who's a guide, but ultimately the work comes down to you doing it yourself and for yourself. Right. Um, so I'm guessing that most people who are listening to this um, know about how you kind of got famous from, from doing these... Uh, incredible ultra events and um, taking spills and, and pushing beyond you know, what most of us would regard as, as the limits of, of human endurance. Um, but so, but that was sort of a, a um, like a career stepping stone almost. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it didn't feel like it at the time, you know, after you, you wiped out and in, uh, in the second Hawaii ultra ultra man, and you're like, you know, your knee is gashed open. You're like, well, this is, this is going to be really good career fodder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly when I was doing that, the idea that it, that it would provide the basis for, for a career would have been preposterous. You know, there was no master plan or anything like that. Um, 
And when you say stepping stone, it's funny because I just did a podcast with a, a, a guy yesterday. It's a triathlon podcast. And he said, you're the only guy who, who used triathlon to achieve some level of notoriety and then abandon it. And I was like, oh, you're breaking my heart. That's <laughs> not true. You know, <laughs> like I love triathlon. But the, the truth of the matter is that, you know, I, I don't look at triathlon as a stepping stone at all. Like triathlon is, is in my blood and, and, I, and I love it and I go out and I train every day. Um, but I think, you know, my motivations have evolved in the sense that, you know, when I was training for Ultraman, that was very much a personal quest. I wanted to answer certain questions um, that I had about myself. And so it was very important to me, you know, how much I was training, what my watts were on the bike, what kind of pace I could run, all those sorts of things were, were you know, kind of dictated my day. And now as a result of things that have happened in my life, um, you know, my life's very different and, and, you know, my motivations have evolved. And now, now I wake up in the morning, um, enthusiastic about different things. You know, I, I love the training, but it's, it's less about that. And it's more about how can I carry this message to help other people? You know, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And if I go out and train on my bike for five hours, then is that the best way to carry this message? Um, to help people. And right now, the answer to that question is no, you know, maybe in a couple of years, uh, the best way for me to carry a healthy message and inspire people is to tackle another crazy challenge. I wouldn't consider myself retired from sport. And there's certainly things that I still would like to do in that arena that I feel like I could, I could still excel at. But right now, um, you know, it's books and it's podcasting and it's traveling and public speaking and all these other ways that I have this, this, you know, I have this, this gift that's been given to me, which is the opportunity to go and connect with people and, and have an impact on them. And that's something I don't take lightly. I take it very seriously and it carries a great responsibility um, with it. And, and so for me, it's very important to serve that to the best of my abilities. So, yeah, one of the things I'm realizing, and I, and I, I, I recommended um, finding Ultra this morning to a coaching client of mine, um, and I find that I, I, recommend, you know, I recommend the book to everyone because it's a great read and it's inspiring, but there are people for whom it's, it'll, it will be a sort of a, an hors d'oeuvre or a dessert, and there's other people for whom when they connect with your story, it can save their lives, and, mm -hmm. you know, and those are the people who are sort of, you know, extreme, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like, they, like, they're not going to go about, you know, they're, they're, they're some, some of them are in a bad way right now, you know, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and, and they're not going to make little changes, <laughs> right? They're, right. they're going to, they're going to, the, the way they're going to do it is to apply every ounce of, of passion and willpower to, to, to create this, this transformation. And, and yet now you're, you're at a place now with, with the plant power way that you're speaking to a much broader audience of people who, who may take up that, uh, you know, the one step at a time. You're not, the book doesn't right. tell people like, okay, tomorrow morning, go on a seven day juice cleanse, you know, full, <laughs> right. full of, full of uh, stinky Ayurvedic <laughs> herb juices and then become vegan for the rest of your life and run 24 miles, right? right so right, the approach right. that you took is not the approach that you're taking in the plant power way. Right. I mean, I think it goes back to, you know, what's the best way to impact 
the most number of people in a positive way. And, you know, Finding Ultra is, is definitely a story of extremes. And, and you know, the, the people that really resonate with it are, are those are my peeps, you know, the ones that, that love the extreme stories. And I think, you know, the book Finding Ultra still continues to find new audiences because I think I think initially it, it, it kind of struggled in the marketplace because there's a picture of a guy running on the cover and they think it's a book all about running. And, and on some level it is. But but really, you know, I think for people that take the, t- the time to really read it, they realize like, oh, this is a this is kind of a, a hero's journey. It's a spiritual story of, of an evolution of a human being, you know, and, and it has applicability far outside of, you know, sport or ultra endurance sport, because th- those can really just serve as metaphors for kind of unlocking a, a, a better, healthier version of yourself. Um, but I understand that, you know, it, it's not going to, you know, speak to every single person out there. And, and I think when it came time to figure out like, all right, well, what's the next book to write, you know, as a result of Finding Ultra, I would get, you know, I get lots of emails from people and, and they say, oh, I'm, you know, I read the book, I'm inspired, I'm ready to go, like I'm totally motivated, so what do I eat, right? Because like, Finding Ultra, it, it had nutritional information, particularly in the appendices, but it certainly didn't provide super concrete, you know, everyday kind of advice about how to, you know, basically transition to this lifestyle. So it was a natural, you know, evolution to follow it up with a cookbook that actually provides the actual things that that we eat and and also an opportunity to you know, take what was initially my story, Finding Ultra, my personal story, and and really tell the family story because you know everything that's happened to me is all in the context of a journey that that my entire family took with me, and although it's you know spoken of in in Finding Ultra, it's not really focused on to the extent that I think it, it merits. And so the Plant Power Way was really an opportunity to devote uh, greater attention to that, and you know. I went to Barnes and Noble with Julie. We looked at all the cookbooks that were on the shelf, all the vegan plant-based cookbooks and all the other cookbooks out there. And, and you know, it, it was kind of intimidating because there's so many amazing cookbooks and it seemed like there was a cookbook for everything. And there was, you know, every amazing dish seemed to already find its way into some vegan cookbook. So I thought, well, what are we, you know, what are we doing? Like I, I, I don't want to just write a cookbook because it seems logical unless there's something unique and interesting that we can bring to this discussion that I feel either hasn't been expressed or is underexpressed. Um, and one thing I noticed is that, you know, although there's vegan cookbooks for every kind of, you know, sort of regional type food and, and vegan cookbooks about how to do it on a budget and, and very gourmet, you know, sort of cookbooks with lots of very amazing but but somewhat precious recipes, I felt like what what was needed and where we could really fill a gap was to really speak to the modern American family. You know, the, the person who might not pick up a vegan cookbook but just as interested in being healthier and they have kids, their kids are eating mac and cheese and drinking Diet Coke at school and, and they're just frustrated and they're trying to find solutions uh, to live better. And so I thought, you know, what better way to kind of introduce a book to people like that than to create kind of a very welcome, inviting, um, you know, place for them to step into and introduce them to these principles that have been transformative for not just me, but every single person in my family. And and to kind of take that idea of, of vegan or plant-based and, and um, not necessarily invert it, but put a very kind of modern, high-design spin on it that that really um, 
changes the context in some regard because I think everybody comes to that idea of vegan or plant-based with some level of preconceived idea about what that means and, and who that person is who, who lives that lifestyle. And we wanted to show that this is something that's really cool. It's modern. It's fun. You know, it's this book is very lifestyle heavy. So there's all this kind of editorial photography about how we live our lives that, you know, when you look at it, my hope is that it is aspirational for people who say, these people look healthy, they look happy, look at them enjoying their food, and they look cool. You know, they don't look like, you know, the dreadlocked guy at the Grateful Dead concert that I always thought was a vegan. These people look like they're thriving and, 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 and create that kind of, you know, hopefully magnetize them to, you know, get more interested. And, and so this book is, is really, like you said, it's not, it's not making it, it's not placing any demands on people. It's not saying you have to do it this way or that way. We're just saying, you know what, forget about the labels. Let's just start eating more healthy plants and let's figure out some strategies and some tools that can help your children create healthier long-term lifestyle habits that are going to serve them well for the rest of their lives. Hmm. Your, your kids appear in Finding Ultra, especially in the photos, you know, kind of, uh, mm -hmm. um, but they really sort of star in the plant power way. Um, I'm wondering, was, was everybody cool with that? Did you have discussions about, you know, because you're kind of setting yourselves up as, as role models to a certain extent. Like, was, it, was, every, was, <laughs> yeah. was everybody in? I get, you know, I get very, like, squeamish when I hear that, that word role model. Like, you know, because I, I'm always very quick to say, look, you know, we're, we're, we're in this with you guys. Like, we're doing this together. And, and I'm here to share my experience. But I'm not here as an expert telling you exactly how it needs to get done. So, you know, I try to root everything in my personal experience um, as much as possible. And to, to your question, Howard, I mean, you know, the, the, you know, some kids are into it more than others. Like Jaya, our little seven-year-old, she's a total ham. Every time the camera pulls out, she just can't wait to strike a pose and have fun with it. And, you know, Mathis, our 11-year-old, she's a little camera shy and needs a little bit more, you know, sort of encouragement. And and the boys were, you know, they were on board. But, you know, if, if it was up to them, they probably wouldn't be having their picture taken that much. So, you know, it's a spectrum. And they were all supportive of the book and, and, and understood what it was and were supportive of that. Um, and, and so there weren't any, there was no rebellion, like, I don't want to be in the book or anything like that. Um, I think they're all super proud of it and, and we're happy to participate, but I think, you know, it gets tricky when you have photographers involved and they're saying, stand here, you know, stuff like that. Cause you know, it's just not the natural kind of state of being for, for children. Um, and so, you know, it became important when we, when we decided who we wanted to do the lifestyle photography and we, we picked this guy, McClay, um, who's a young Australian kid who, who his career focus is really photographing rock bands on tour. Like he goes to Lollapalooza and all these music fests and, and really, you know, loves photographing rock and roll musicians. But he has this very gleeful, joyful, you know, childlike spirit to him that our kids love. Like they love hanging out with him. They love it when he's around. We had met him. He came and did a shoot with us on some project a couple of years ago. And we just stayed in touch because he was so great. And so when we thought, who, we, who do we want to do the photographs for our cookbook? He was, he was the guy that, that we wanted. And, and so he's able to make my kids feel comfortable and safe in what he's doing. And I think that made a huge difference. Well, so, um, 
I don't know how many people have seen the book yet, or so how much feedback you've gotten, but I, w- I want to tell you my favorite photograph. <laughs> and I'm curious whether other people uh, feel the same way. It's the one on the sauces and dressings um, bifold. Uh-huh. The, your, the four kids. Um, the boys are busy working, sort of kind of studiously, one with the Vitamix, the other is like, you know, chopping looks like uh, zucchini. And the girls both have these expressions on their face that are just like so full of personality. Uh, Jaya's holding two zucchinis. She's sort of like sliding down by the counter with her her mouth wide open. Uh Uh, I love that one, too. That's my favorite one. (laughs) It's great because everybody has you see all their different personalities and they're all participating, you know, and that's the idea. Like the kind of overarching theme is is involve your kids in what you're doing. Make it fun. Make it an experience. Engage them. Engage them in the shopping of the food. You know, every time you go to the market, whether it's the farmer's market or the local grocery store, whatever it is, that's an opportunity to get into a dialogue with your kids about this food or that food and where it comes from and why we're choosing this one and not that one. And then when you come home, involve them in the preparation of the evening meal, like teach them how to, you know, chop a cucumber, teach them how to, you know, make some simple recipes, you know, teach them what the different flavors are and what the nutritional qualities of these different foods are. And when they learn, they become more engaged, right? When they know how to make a recipe that they enjoy eating, then they want to make it again. And there's a certain sense of connection and and pride and self-esteem um, that, that comes with that, that I think encourages them to continue on, on their path. And, and by, you know, by doing that, you're also, um, you're giving them, you're giving them some level of mastery and sovereignty over, over their food choices that I think we've lost touch with, right? Like we, we don't know how to cook. We don't know where our food comes from. We're in this instant gratification, you know, kind of culture where it's just easy to grab something that's packaged and and eat that and, and not think twice about that. So this is about, you know, bringing the, you know, cultivating the, the communion aspect of food and meal preparation, um, back into the back into the home. You know, I, I recently had uh, Dan Butner on my podcast, who's the Blue Zones guy. He's the guy who traveled all over the world and and studied um, studied indigenous cultures and identified these five places, these five little pockets across the planet where people not only live the longest, but they live the healthiest and they live the happiest. And 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 from sort of studying these these cultures, he was able to extract and divine certain principles, guiding principles that kind of were common amongst these cultures that he, you know, believes is, is the predominant reason why they, they tend to thrive, um, longer than, than most other places. And, you know, one of them is eating a predominantly plant-based diet. That's like, you know, rule number one. And a second one, and, and maybe one that's, that's more overlooked is, is uh, the community aspect of enjoying your meal, like having your family around you, having your extended family around you, you know, keeping your elders around and having them involved in your life and, and, you know, cultivating that kind of connection with the people that you love, uh, you know, with your family and, and, and extending out into, you know, sort of friends, close friends and and colleagues, the more, the more you can, 
kind of uh, have them be participatory in your life, uh, you know, with respect to the meals that you're sharing in the evening and beyond, then, you know, this has a tremendous impact on your overall health and, and longevity. And so, you know, that picture is kind of symbolizes that, I think, in some respect. Mm-hmm. And, and, and thinking about it, there are there's ways in which the plant based or vegan community has not done that so well. Like the, like we're we're we kind of are good at celebrating our choices and celebrating our ethics, and celebrating you know oh we you know the food tastes so good, but I found other communities are kind of better at the at the community building and I you know it's it's almost like that's the hardest part for me like our we eat great in my house we have great ingredients I'm cooking great food but like my kids will come in and I'm 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 working on a manuscript. And they're like, are you even noticing what you're eating and how much and how fast? I'm like, no, uh-huh. no, what was it? <laughs> you know, it was that, uh, you know, that four mushroom soup that we that we made the other night. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I get it. You know, I think I agree with that completely. And I think that, um, you know, I think that that that, uh, you know, I love the plant based community. I love the vegan community and everything about that. And again, you know, when I when I looked at it. And, and when it came time to write this book, it's like, what's underexpressed? What, what in this movement I, do I think needs a little bit more attention? And, and that was certainly one of the things that I also identified as being something that, that, you know, we could speak to that I think we should be talking about a little bit more. And I think that, you know, oftentimes, you know, maybe this is dictated by external cultural factors, but, you know, people that are eating plant-based or vegan, they can be, they can isolate themselves, right? Because other people don't want to eat that way or or, um, you know, whatever it is. And so they find themselves alone eating their, their thing and instead of trying to find a way to bring other people into it in, in a non-threatening way that, that, you know, will hopefully extend the message and, and help them kind of embrace some of these, these ideas and, and enjoy that in their own life. And, you know, wellness, you know, I think we get, we get really caught up in, in certain aspects of, advocacy, you know, and for everybody, it's different. Maybe it's the ethics that is a primary motivator for somebody who's part of this movement. For somebody else, it's environmental concerns. For somebody else, it's health concerns or, or some combination of those things. Um, and we can get myopic and just focus on that one thing and think that that's what it's all about. And I think that health is something that we need to kind of perceive and embrace in, a, in, a, in an extremely holistic, comprehensive sense. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, that, that good health and, and sort of sustainable lifestyle certainly, uh, you know, begins with what's on your plate and what you decide to put on your mouth, but it, it, it extrapolates from there and, and applies to every decision that you make throughout your day. Uh, you know, how mind, mindful are you in your, your decisions throughout the day? How are you interacting with people, especially people that can't help you? You know, the checkout girl at the grocery store or, you know, just, just sort of service people that you interact with throughout the day. Um, you know, how, how, how present are you in your communications? Are you distracted? Um, and, you know, checking your Twitter feed and, and looking at your emails when you're standing in front of somebody trying to have a conversation with them. Um, you know, what are you doing physically? Are you moving your body? Are you, you know, tending to your physical health? You know, how are your relationships? All of these things, I think, are integral to the, to the wellness equation. And, 
And to the extent that they get short shrift because we're so overly focused on a micronutrient or, you know, or, or some, some political, you know, point of view, I think we can get, we can get lost. And so, you know, I guess what I'm saying is sort of on some level, um, a continuation of, of a lot of the things that you talk about in the book that you wrote with, with Colin Hull, right? Instead of being reductionist in our approach, not just to science, but to health and to how we're making decisions throughout our life and to be more, uh, to, to be more broadly applicable in those and, and to think of them, you know, more like, uh, you know, we're orbiting the planet earth as opposed to looking through a microscope. I think that we will all be well served in that. Right. And, and, you know, and I've found increasing layers of holism since working on that book from beyond food to lifestyle, from beyond lifestyle to spirit. I think, you know, it sort of is the same trajectory that I see you following in your expanding interest in your podcast. Um, and one of, one of the challenges for me is that part of my brain likes facts and figures. It likes science. It likes studies. It likes numbers. And the more holistic I become and the, the larger the context, the less reliable all that stuff is. And at some level, there's, there's a, a surrender to some knowing beyond myself. And I've, and I've, as a, as a science writer, that scares me sometimes. I love that though, because I think that's the evolution, you know, and I think there's, there's, there's great power and, and poetry in that. Um, I think that, you know, I think that as a scientist, you can get overly, uh, you know, attached to facts and figures and, and lose a little sight of, uh, of, of a respectable level of humility. Right. And I think that there is room for faith, uh, and room for kind of an expanded level of consciousness within the construct of science. When you start to look at, you know, how, how science and our methodologies start to break down at the subatomic level. And we understand that, you know, two, two subatomic particles can be on separate sides of the United States and influence each other simultaneously or how, you know, subatomic particles show properties of both, uh, light and matter at the same time and things like that, that, that really kind of, um, provide a foundation for wonder, right? And when you can wonder, then you can have faith and then you can understand that there are so many things that probably escape our ability to perceive. And I think that that's, that's a cool thing, right? That's a cool thing. And that allows me to kind of understand, you know, ideas like, um, like I mentioned before, that when I know that when my heart is right and I'm in service, that, that somehow, um, you know, I can trust that my needs are going to get met. And, and you can't run a scientific test that's going to prove that. But that has been my experience time and time again and an experience that I've seen in other people time and time again. And I think that's a recipe for contentment and satisfaction and, and a purposeful life. And that comes back to something that really struck me this time I was reading Finding Ultra that I didn't really notice the first time, which is when you described that first um, cup of beer and what, what it did for you. It said, you, you know, it made you feel like normal in a group of people, like you fit in, like you could crack jokes and be comfortable. And I know that feeling very well of wondering where my, in my instruction manual is. <laughs> Like why, right. why I wasn't issued one, why I'm like playing at being a human being rather than simply being it. 
And it, 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 it sounds like this, this level of, of holism and trusting and faith and intuition is, you know, the, the ultimate cosmic beer. <laughs> Yeah, on some level, I mean, there there are a lot of people who say that people that are addicts and alcoholics are really just they're searchers. You know, they're searching for something. They're 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 trying to answer certain questions for themselves that initially, uh, you know, they seek them in unhealthy ways, and then ultimately, you know, hopefully they can they can then ply them in in more productive ways. And I think, you know, I I relate to that. And, and, uh, you know, it's easy to be kind of dismissive of that and say, well, that's just, you're weak, you know, you're, you're relying on these, these non-scientific, you know, concepts to make you sleep at night and feel comfortable about your place in the world because it's a scary universe and, and we don't know the answers. But, you know, all I have to go on is, is what my, you know, experience has been and how time and time again, when I've kind of, you know, made certain decisions that, were seemingly illogical and then ultimately, you know, played out in, in the way that I could have never predicted, but ultimately suit me perfectly that, that I began to really, uh, believe that, that, um, that there is a certain perfection in the way that the universe is, is divined. And, and that's a cool thing, you know, and I realize that's ephemeral and all of that, but, but, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but um, but I think, you know, your original question was, you know, this evolution from maybe where you were when you were writing Finding Ultra to now. And I think that's growth. You know, if we're here on Earth to do one thing, it's to continue to evolve and grow. And, you know, I think it would be easy or would have been easier for me to just stay a triathlete and do a bunch of races and, and use that as my medium to express myself. But um, on some level, I think that that's static and, and, you know, I'm interested in, in, in continuing this journey. And I think that that is something that I also see within the vegan and plant-based movement in the sense that people, uh, you know, step into this way of eating and living and, and it agrees with them and they become very passionate about it, but they get stuck you know, they get stuck on, on the kale, like what, what they become obsessed with, you know, certain kind of, uh, reductionist aspects uh, of what it is to live this way. And, and they never move beyond that, you know, and for me, like cleaning up my diet and getting plant-based was, it was an, was a, you know, a foundational and, and extremely important, if not the most important thing that I did to kind of shift my perspective on life. But, but it evolves from there. Because for me, it's like I cleaned up my diet so that I could have better energy and find new ways to express that. But if I just stay stuck on, you know, the plate, then I feel like that is that's putting the brakes on, you know, a continuing evolution. I know for myself, my stuck places in this journey generally come are triggered or anchored by opposition by sort of, you know, going on Facebook and seeing ridiculous stuff and people arguing and, you know, the latest, you know, government uh, recommendations on cholesterol. And I can feel myself digging in. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it, you know, I was, I was, I was really struck when um, I heard you speak um, last spring at a question and answer session. And what really struck me is how for, for someone who defines yourself as, you know, lying in the sand and you're trying to find balance, you're such a voice of moderation and outreach 
and tolerance of, you know, non-vegans, of, of people who aren't yet on the spiritual journey. You know, you, you have a good relationship with Tim Ferriss, who really likes people who write stuff about protein that I would regard as insane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and yet, you know, you've, uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious whether that was, is, is that kind of not natural for you? Is it, was it sort of a step in evolution or, you know, uh, not natural to be to be kind of moderate in my communication. Yeah, to not just in your communication, but in it, it, it feels like it's not it's not a stance. It's like you're honestly right. really interested in what other people have to say and nonjudgmental and and willing and open to have a conversation with just about anyone. Yeah, I mean, I think that that Listen, you know, when I see crazy stuff on the Internet, too, like I have an inclination to get involved and, and roll my sleeves up. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. You know, I think for me, I approach every interaction with this idea of what's the most effective way for me to carry this message and communicate with people in a way that they can hear what I'm saying. You know, and I think there's a lot of psychology that plays into that. So, for example, you know, I did the Joe Rogan podcast and I'm going to do his podcast again in a couple of weeks. And he's a you know, he's of the carnivorously inclined. He is not a vegan and and nor are, you know, ninety nine point nine nine percent of the people that listen to his show. But he has a huge audience and I will gladly accept an invitation to go and talk to him and share, um, you know, to his listeners. And so if if and when I go into that environment, <clears throat> what is the best way for me to acquit myself? And I think for me to, you know, blast a bunch of statistics and try to, you know, become combative and judgmental, I think is not productive. You know, I think it's much more productive to listen to what other people are saying, share my experience, try to, you know, root my advocacy in my own personal experience as opposed to, you know, trying to, you know, basically convert people through facts or fear mongering um, and to let people know that I value their opinion, um, even if my opinion might be different uh, and, and to, you know, give them that level of respect, you know, I suppose. I mean, I don't know that I have one kind of, I, it's not like I have a rule book for how I handle this kind of stuff. I just trust my instincts. And I also understand that, that, you know, that, uh, you know, I may be the only person that they know from this movement and what are they going to take away from it? Are they going to take away like that guy gave me something to think about, or I like that guy, or I hate that guy, or, you know, I can't stand what he's saying. Like, you know, what is the impression that they're going to take away? And, and, you know, I just try to be authentic to who I am. And, and I think it helps being an athlete because, you know, I've had certain results that, that kind of transcend anything that comes out of my mouth. Um, but I try to be that, you know, I try to be, my whole thing is like, I want to be the guy who can kind of translate a bunch of this information into, into a way that is accessible, understandable and palatable for a guy who's a bond trader on Wall, Wall Street who doesn't know anything about this. You know, I try to make it really easy to digest and I try to make it appealing, you know. And so I think if I start talking about, cert about it in a different way, it can turn people off. So I'm trying to just get people to take that first step to empower them um, to go on their own journey. And that journey doesn't have to look anything like mine, but how can I get them to take that first step to be interested enough to do that? And that's just, you know, my approach. And I think every voice 
is different and every voice has a reason and a purpose and has value. So, you know, the way that Gary Yurofsky talks about veganism is very different from me, but I'm glad that he's talking about it that way. And, and I love what he does. And there's a certain contingent of the population that responds to that, you know, in a very powerful way. Um, and, and, and that applies to how Dr. Esselstyn talks about it and how Colin Campbell talks about it and how you talk about it. All of our voices have merit and, and they're unique and, and have value. And each, each person's message, you know, can connect with a different kind of person. And I think that's cool. Mm, I, th I think, uh, <laughs> I feel in my head, I'm sort of hitting my, uh, my leading edge of development. <laughs> Uh -huh. with this because I you know I feel like so sometimes I can be really understanding but I also have like you know snippets of of text that I've pre-programmed <laughs> so that when mm -hmm. I my Facebook comments now are I see this differently uh, would you be interested in another interpretation because that's like <laughs> not what I would write right right but then but that's great because you're asking them if you know, you're not just blasting them. You're saying, would you be interested first? So then it's on them to say yes or no. Right. So you I, know? I, you know, I, I, that's, I do that strategically. Um, I yeah. don't, I yeah, don't, yeah, yeah. I don't but always it's not do your, it. It's not your inclination, right? Not usually. You know, and I, I love how Garth communicates. You know, Garth Davis is very unequivocal and he's done the research and he can talk, he can speak to it. Um, you know, very intelligently and very passionately and very persuasively. And I love reading his posts on Facebook. And I think that he is, you know, a, a superpower to be reckoned with. And I can't wait to see him blow up and have his book be huge because he is a rare, uh, he is a rare beast in the sense that he is both um, extremely well-versed in the science and he has the, the sort of, you know, medical pedigree to back that up. But usually when doctors get up and talk, they can be bland and, you know, there's a lot of graphs and statistics and sort of boring PowerPoints. But Garth is very dynamic and he's very charismatic. So he is that – he's a lethal combination of, of personality and, uh, and science. And I think that, you know, I can't, he's going to continue to get bigger and bigger and I can't wait to see him get exposed to larger and larger audiences. So I'm really – excited about the book that you guys are working together on because I haven't seen anybody else that can carry the message the way that that Garth does and I think it's super powerful and again it just goes and he does it in a way that's different from from me but I think that he is um, very well suited to the way that he communicates and 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 you know when I watched him speak in Marshall Texas it was phenomenal it was phenomenal right <clears throat> yeah no it's uh it's it's a great privilege working with him i'm learning a ton and and it's fun to kind of let loose to kind of you know amplify his voice um you know in in ways that 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 are maybe more powerful than i would put it myself mm -hmm. um, but i guess i guess my bigger problem is with the people that i really disagree with um, to whom I can't, you know, I can't help but impugn sort of bad motives. And I'm thinking about this really challenging book I read. I don't know if you, you know, uh, Julia Butterfly Hill. Mm -mm. Uh, the, she was an, uh, an activist, environmental activist. I think she spent like a year and a half in a tree, in a redwood tree in California. Uh -huh. And so she became, you know, fairly notorious. And it, in her book, um, 
she, she wrote about her relationship with the tree, which she called Luna, and and how that informed her relationship with the people who were trying to like blast her off of her platform with low flying helicopters, you know, spraying things on her, and how the only way she could survive was to see them as as loving, worthy beings who who happened to be a little bit confused at the moment. Um, right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, listen, when somebody pushes your button by a comment on Facebook or an exchange that you're having, um, you know, what's coming out of that person's mouth or the energy that they're exuding is m much, 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 much more about that person and far, far, far less about whatever you're saying, because whatever you're saying is pushing some button in them that's causing them to be reactive. Right. Right. And, and so whether it's defensiveness or, you know, some level of self-sovereignty or you're rattling their, you know, paradigm in some way that makes them uncomfortable. It's really, it's, it, it's really not about the facts and it's about emotions. So when somebody does that, their walls are up and, and to engage them, you're never going to convert that person because they're not interested in being converted or having a, an objective dialogue about anything. So how do you navigate that? You just, you know, for me, like I, that's what, those are the people that I, I either don't engage with, or I just say, it's cool, man, you know, whatever, like then they can kind of calm down and the defensiveness kind of comes down and maybe there's an opportunity for a discussion there. And, and sometimes maybe not, it depends. It's very much a case by case thing. Right. And I think what I'm, what I'm getting at in my own development is this understanding that like the plant-based or vegan or cruelty-free lifestyle is all about erasing um, disconnects. And, and so, you know, the, the kindness that I can bring to an argument is, is arguably as important as the kindness I can bring to my plate. Yeah, I think that's true, right? And so when you're representing a movement that's all about compassion, but you're being combative, then there's a dissonance there, right? Because you're not, you're not practicing what it is that you're preaching on some level. And I think people kind of intuitively see that and like, you know, the, the whole kind of like stereotype of the angry vegan who's, you know, passionate about animal rights but hates people, <laughs> you know, like, you know, so it, it, gets, it gets tricky. You know, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. I mean, wh I think I, what I do is I try, to, I, try to learn, I try to ask a lot of questions to the other person to find out what kind of person they are. Like what are the things that they're interested in and how could that possibly relate to some of the things that I'm interested in? and find some kind of common ground. You know, it goes back to, again, like, you know, for some people, watching Cowspiracy is the most persuasive thing for them because they're passionate about the environment. They're not motivated by health or ethics, but, you know, the environment really gets them going. And that's a very different person from the person who responds to a movie like Earthlings. Mm -hmm. You know, so again, it goes back to all these varying voices. And I think that, you know, to find a point of commonality, I think we all, there's nobody who's going to say we should have more transparency in where our food comes from and we should all have a better understanding of how our food is, is grown and, and, and manufactured and packaged and distributed. And that's not a vegan argument. That's like a humanitarian argument. And oftentimes, you know, starting with something like that is a great place to have, you know, a more productive dialogue. I, it's occurring to me that transparency is sort of like a really overarching theme of this conversation of your life in that, you know, and, you, and I keep uh, 
um, leafing through the, the this gorgeous book, The Plant Power Way, on my desk, and it keeps opening up to the section on sort of being in the present. You know, it's mm-hmm. got a beautiful picture of, of, of Julie doing a, a kind of a yoga pose and, and talk about sort of just being present and mindful in the moment. And that's kind of the cure for everything. It, 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 was, it was the thing that turned you around. It's the thing that allows someone who's eating a really crappy diet to suddenly realize it. <laughs> To, you know, to mm-hmm. sort of chew slowly and really taste that McDonald's burger and go, oh, my God, I could do so much better than this. Um, and for, you know, and for all of us, whatever, whatever demons we're we're sent here to uh, to integrate and uh, and make peace with, um, you know, transparency yeah, is sort of the 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 cure all for for all of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, mindfulness, transparency, authenticity. I mean, these are the themes of of you know all of the content that I that I try to put out there. And uh, you know, whether it's transparency in the in the corporations that are feeding us, or you know, transparency uh, about my own actions and and aligning my you know my advocacy with my actions more and more, you know, better and better, and not just talking the talk, but how can I better walk the walk? And, and you know, th- those are things that I'm always thinking about. And, and that's what I think, you know, continues to kind of catapult the journey forward and, 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 and leads to, you know, greater and greater evolution, you know, so, and the podcast has been a great medium for me to explore that. Like I had Joshua Catcher on not too long ago, who, um, is a, uh, cruelty free fashion designer with a fashion line called brave gentleman and a, and a blog called the discerning brute. And he explores issues of masculinity and, you know, compassionate living and, and, you know, has this amazing fashion line where he doesn't use any products that, you know, involve animal cruelty whatsoever. And so for me, you know, for a while, I've been sort of trying to be better about the clothes that I, that I buy and trying to be more understanding of that. But then he just explained to me, you know, and he sort of laid out this entire world that I knew nothing about, you know, that now has really launched into my consciousness a much greater awareness of just how important those choices are, you know, sort of beyond the plate. Like, and again, it's the evolution beyond the kale. It's like what's on our plate is important, but okay, what are the other consumer choices that we're making? How do those impact the environment? How do those relate to ethics and and, and morality? And and how can I do better to make a choice that's more sustainable and, and causes less harm? And, you know, clothes are the next step for me, you know, being more aware of, of, you know, where these clothes are made, you know, who were the people that made them and, you know, what was involved in that process. And, 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 and again, so that's transparency, right? <laughs> greater and greater transparency across the board. Right. That kind of answers my, my last scribbled question in the finding ultra margin, which is you talk a lot about pivotal moments and being willing to face the truth as opposed to trying to avoid it. And I wanted to know if you still have those moments, and if so, how frequently. And it sounds like that was one with Joshua Catcher. Yeah, I think we I think we all have these moments. You know, I mean, it's you know some of them are more amplified than other others. But I think when you are kind of pursuing a more mindful approach to your day, 
then you become much more aware of your surroundings. Like synchronicities start to show up. You start to see the through line between certain things that happen to you throughout the day. And you just have a, a greater degree of clarity. And, and so I think when you are paying attention, when your senses are, are heightened in that regard and you're more in the moment and mindful, then you're much more uh, likely to be aware of these moments and, and the kind of inherent power that they carry. And they don't have to be huge moments like on the staircase or, or going to rehab or things like that. They can be little things in exchange with Joshua Ketcher that made me rethink my choices with the clothes that I decide to purchase or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, every decision that we make and the millions of decisions that we make every day provides some kind of opportunity, right? And the more mindful we are, the more present we are, the more conscious we are of, uh, you know, of making those decisions or kind of taking a contrary action. And I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm the furthest thing from perfect at this. And, you know, my, my life history is that, you know, I don't change anything unless I'm in a tremendous amount of pain and I feel like there's no other options and I'm backed into a corner, you know, like that's my default. Uh, and, and I, as I say, like the road gets narrower, you know, the, the more I continue to evolve, um, the, the, the more uncomfortable I get with behaviors that used to not cause me any consternation, right? Like, you know, simple things like we got rid of our television, you know, and that was something I did not want to do. You know, Julie was like, we got to get rid of it because we were seeing the impact on our kids and it just wasn't good. And I understood that intellectually, but, you know, I didn't want to, you know, I like some of the shows that I watch on TV. That was not something I would have done on my own, you know, on my own. Uh, and now it's been a while and I don't miss it and it's no big deal and our kids don't miss it. And so that's the road getting narrower. You know, it's like that's a practice I would have not have just, you know, sort of gotten rid of without, you know, the support of my wife and, and kind of this family decision that we made. Um, but, you know, that became, you know, something that we needed to look at. And so what's next? You know, there's always something next. You never get to a destination with it. You just continue to try to expand and grow. Right. Well, it's listening to that. It suddenly made me realize what a gift it is to not live in a blue zone. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like people who live in the blue zones can default to, you know, good, um, healthy, community supported behaviors. They don't have to think about it. I mean, maybe, maybe, right. the, maybe the goal is we've reached a point in our collective evolution where, you know, we've, we've moved up to grad school and we're going to have to do this stuff without the help of a, of a community. We're going to have to build them ourselves out of scratch. Yeah. You got to be more of a ninja. I mean, that's something that Dan talks about all the time. He's like, it's much easier to get people to change their behaviors when you change their environment than to get them to voluntarily, you know, change their behaviors. And so, you know, the blue zones are all about environments that support healthy lifestyle, lifestyle decisions without them having to even think about it because that's just the way that they live. But, you know, we live in a different world where we're, you know, bombarded with unhealthy choices, you know, throughout our day. And so, you know, we have to be, we have to really be like ninjas in order to make the better choice and, and turn those choices into habits that become, you know, long-term kind of practices that, that become sustainable within the construct of our lives. And so it is hard, you know, I'm empathetic to that. And, and like I said, I make tons of bad decisions all the time. Like I'm not standing on any kind of pedestal on this in any regard. And I appreciate how difficult it is. Well, so the, the plant power way um, that I'm holding in my hand right now really is 
a way to move from individual ninja to family ninja. And I expect, mm -hmm. you know, that, that the level of mastery will continue to extend into neighbors community. It is a fabulous, fantastic, huge book. It's a cookbook. It's a coffee table book. And I know it's coming out soon. And you have a, a thingy about it, right? A thunderclap, which I had never heard of until I, I saw your email. Can you tell people how they can help uh, get this transformational tool really singing in the world? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first thing is like, I'm going to change the subtitle of the book to how to become a family ninja, because that's kind of awesome. So <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, yeah, the book comes out April 28th. Um, I'm not sure when you're posting this podcast. But yeah, in like, wow, that's in 11 days, it's coming up. Yeah, um, but it's available. I'm posting this on April 28th. Okay. So it's, <laughs> it'll be the day of and uh, today. And so you today. can you, you can get it. Yeah, it's coming out today. You can get it anywhere. Um, you know, support your local booksellers. Uh, that would be the first thing that I suggest if you have a, you know, I like supporting independent bookstores. So if you have one of those in your area, um, you know, try to get it from them. Um, if you can't, uh, of course, all the online retailers have them, Barnes and Noble and, and the like. Um, in this pre-order phase, which will no, no longer be relevant when your listeners hear this, but just for your own personal edification, we have this thing called Thunderclap, which is, it's cool. It's a online crowdsourcing platform, sort of like Kickstarter, but instead of donating money to our cause, you just donate a social media post. Like you join and you just say, I will donate a Facebook post or a, twi or a tweet. And then on April 28th, um, everybody who joins uh, the, the tweet goes, gets blasted out to their networks that basically just supports, um, not just our book, the plant power way, but this idea of, of, of embracing a more plant centric, um, way of eating and, and living. And so that's been really cool because basically it's creating community around these ideas. I mean, the book is the excuse, but it's really cultivating community around this, this, this plant-based lifestyle. And it's giving people that are interested in, in what we're doing, uh, you know, a way to feel connected to it and to support it. And, you know, without having to, it, it takes two seconds. It doesn't take any time and it certainly doesn't cost them any money. And that's great. We've been able to get, I think we're at almost as of today, uh, like 1,300, 1,400 supporters with a social reach that's almost 900,000 at this point. So on, uh, on, I think it's set, the tweets are all set to go out on April 27th. So hope the internet will get blasted with the message. And that's really fun, man. It's been really cool to see all these people, you know, kind of come on board to support it. Right. Well, so um, if, if I could find the, uh, the, the off-track betting uh, parlor where I could bet that the book will become a uh, New York Times bestseller, I would I would go there and put down a large sum of money because between the work you've already done um, with yourself, by yourself, for yourself, the work you've done with your family, the podcast, um, and the, this beautiful book and the the marketing you're doing for it, uh, I have I have no doubt that it will. Uh, it will peak. And so everyone listening to this today, you can help that happen. You can get it to uh, to number one on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list, at which point millions of people will see it, whereas they wouldn't mm -hmm. see it at number 11. It's a huge tipping yeah. point. So uh, well, let's well, let's, let's make it happen. Yeah, that's the dream. I appreciate that. We still got a lot of work to do. Uh, so we're pushing these pre-sales and all that kind of stuff. You know how that all that goes. So we're working hard. And 
And yeah, you know, the aspiration for the book is is really to just try to get it in front of as many people as possible. And, and I really think that it 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 you know it holds the the potential energy to to shift people's perspectives and and change lives. You know, whether it's your life or the life of a loved one, um, I really believe that, and that's the spirit in which we put it together. And and I'm just excited that uh, you know I guess on the day of this podcast it will be out and we can finally share it with the world. And I appreciate your time. And uh, that was a cool conversation that took us took us to some some really cool places. So thank you for that. Well, I've been looking forward to it since we since we almost had it a year and a half ago. So I'm 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 very appreciative. I really want to thank you for all your inspiration and guidance for me personally and for the whole community and for our planet. Uh, it's a it's a better place to live with you guys on it. So Rich, thanks so much for taking the time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Howard. The feeling is mutual and I can't wait to read the book that you and uh, Garth are putting together. I think it's going to be an amazing thing. Yeah, I can't wait for it to be done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. You're in the Sisyphus stage. Yep. (laughs) Where it's where I'm uh, I'm sacrificing my own well-being for... uh... For the planet, it feels like. For the greater well-being. I, yeah. I know how that is. No, it's, All right, it's, man. it's a great project. All right. Be well. Give cool. my love to everybody. And I, I will. Look forward to staying in touch. Thanks, man. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you got a lot out of that interview with Rich Roll. What a bright light, huh? Upcoming shows of the Plant Yourself podcast include an interview with Amy Hamlin, who uh, is the director, founder and director of the New York Coalition for Healthy School Lunches. And they are tackling all sorts of issues around school food and how we can get our government and our local institutions to feed our kids properly. If you think about it, a civilization that feeds its kids the cheapest, most harmful crap doesn't, uh, doesn't say much about us. Um, following that, I have an interview scheduled with uh, neighbors whom I just met. They live about five miles away, and they have a farm called Peaceful River Farm. And I went there a couple days ago on a tour and was just enchanted. And while I was waiting to uh, to chat with um, Lee, the um, the woman who does all their, their cooking classes, I overheard her talking with some other people, and she kept throwing around names like T. Colin Campbell and Caldwell Esselstyn, and Rich Roll, and and I knew I was in the right place. So we made a quick introduction. She was quite busy, but we arranged that I was going to go over and do an interview. So this will be a field recording, and uh, hopefully it'll, it'll turn out well. So if you'd like to help out the podcast and help it grow and spread the message and help more people plant themselves, you can do it in a bunch of ways. One, you can go to iTunes and leave a review. Uh, give it some stars and tell the world what you think of it. Uh, second, you can promote this on social media, on your Facebook, your Instagram, your Snapchat, your Reddit, whatever whatever's come out this week that uh, that all the cool kids are doing. You can just email it, let people know if there are particular shows you think folks should listen to. And you can contact me if you have ideas for other shows, if you have comments. I love seeing comments both on the Facebook page and on the blog where the podcast lives. And that kind of interaction really helps me um, stay focused, stay inspired, and continue scouring the world for wonderful people 
to bring to you each week. So with that, enjoy the Northern Hemisphere spring and the Southern Hemisphere fall. And as always, be well, my friends.